We are all miracles and must make the most of our limited time here. Each of us have these unique gifts to contribute to the world, and it's our job to develop these gifts and give them away. That's why I created the Preschool SLP podcast. The Preschool SLP is about working smarter to create real change in ourselves and in others. Being an SLP is a mission. Let's discuss topics that matter. What are the game-changing strategies? How can we treat the whole child? How can we create the shiniest versions of ourselves and of our clients? We're here at the drawing board for a reason. You bring your own unique gifts. Together, let's create better. If you work with children with developmental language delay, this is an episode you can't miss. I'm going to share my number one most effective strategy in working with children with developmental language delay. But before we begin and dive into the intervention, let's go into a little bit of background. We talked about last week the number one indicator of whether or not a child has a developmental language delay. And what you're going to see at the preschool level is a lack of complex sentences. What you're going to see at the school age level is difficulty telling narratives. So these two skills that children break down in at the preschool or school age level, the reason for that is because they require strong verbal working memory. And a hallmark of developmental language delay is a poor verbal working memory. Just a bit of review. A verbal working memory is four components. One, the ability to process speech into meaningful units. Two, the ability to hold on to those units and remember them. Three, the ability to sequence and manipulate them in the correct order. And four, the ability to express it. So if there is difficulty in one of these areas, the child is going to have a poor verbal working memory. What we want to do is improve the verbal working memory. That's the goal of intervention. And how are we going to do that? We're going to improve the child's ability to tell narratives. So when I'm talking narratives today, I'm going to talk about oral narratives. This is a very difficult skill that requires a high level of verbal working memory. So when children, by performing this skill of telling a story, they're going to improve their verbal working memory because challenge creates change and a brain that fires together, wires together. So you're, you're really creating neuronal connections when you engage in this complex behavior of telling a narrative. So we're going to talk about how we can help these children with developmental language delay improve their oral narrative skills, in which I share today, a little bit later, my number one most effective strategy. 
But before we begin, let's talk about narratives because there's two types of narratives. There's proto-narratives, which are the beginning narratives that we start seeing at the preschool level that are pretty much discussing one event in one space and time. Later on, we have the true narratives in which multiple events or multiple time periods are sequenced together. Multiple. So you're going to see, first of all, these compound sentences narratives about age three and a half. And they say, I got a robot and I got a bike and I got a Barbie doll and I got magnet tiles. And they're just joining all of these ideas in sort of a listing fashion. And they're bringing them together because they all share a common theme, what they received for Christmas. So you can think of this later on as a sort of informational narrative. At age four, you're going to begin to see the complex sentences. And complex sentences is when you're adding two different ideas and you're bringing them together based on different relationships. So the complex sentence could be relational. So it could be, for instance, I'm really mad because you broke my train. It could be temporal, which could be work first, then trains, in which there's a time concept that connects the two. Another one that we could have here is we could have them be elaborative, which is the train that I got for Christmas is in my playroom. We're taking different ideas and we're bringing them together. In one case, we're doing it to show the relationship between the two ideas. In the other, it's in terms of time. And on the third one, it's to distinguish what we're talking about or who we're talking about or when we're talking about it or where we're talking about it to specify it through elaboration. So you're taking different ideas and you're pulling them together with these clauses. Now, what that takes is a great deal of working memory. So you you have idea A and you could have idea Z and you're going to bring them together, two separate ideas and connect them in an organized manner. So this is a heavy verbal working memory task. At school age, they become a little bit more complex because there's multiple events involved to sequence. So we have three separate actions that I'm putting in order. Or I can talk about an event and what was the antecedent to the event and what was the behavior that resulted from the event and what was the consequence. Or I could go into the story grammar and I could have all of the elements of the story and add more and more elements as the child becomes more and more advanced. And what happens as children get older is that repeats, that cycle repeats over and over again, which there's more stories that layer on one after the next. That is going to be a higher level narrative in which you have multiple events that are sequenced together in an organized manner with sufficient detail, with word choice, with grammatical and syntactical accuracy. So what we're getting to is something that's very challenging. So if you know me, and if you listen to this podcast, you know that I'm not only a therapist, I'm also a researcher. And what we found not only in our research of speech sound disorders, but also in our research of language is that the higher you aim in terms of narratives, the higher the gains. So what do I mean by that? I mean that when children speak in longer and more complex paragraphs, 
What you're going to find is you're going to find better outcomes in terms of the language gains than if you have the child speaking in a simple sentence or a complex sentence. What I'm saying is challenge creates change. The higher you aim in language, just like speech, the higher the gains. So keeping that in mind, you might be saying that sounds really great in theory, but how do you take a child who's speaking at the one or two word utterance and bring them to the paragraph level? And I'm going to tell you, it's the same formula that we use for speech sound disorders. We're going to use a most to least prompting hierarchy in which you take that toolbox and you empty it out and you use every tool available to provide a scaffold in which the child is able to tell the longest and most complex story possible with your assistance. And then what you're going to do is remove your tools one by one, always ensuring that the child's at an 80% accuracy level. I know this sounds familiar because you've heard of this before. We are using intervention strategies that simply are tried and true across disciplines that are highly effective and really work. So I'm going to talk a little bit about my greatest strategy when it comes to language in a moment. But what we're talking about here is aiming high and working on narratives. So that is going to be our treatment target for children at the preschool level. And the way we're going to get there is we're going to give them a maximum level of support by giving them every tool in our toolbox. And then we're going to pull away the tools and the scaffolds with success. And then the child's going to independently stand on their own, kind of like the Eiffel Tower with the scaffolds removed, and they're going to shine. So how are we going to accomplish this? We're going to talk about the McGurk effect. So this is the final part of the episode. I save the best for last. The McGurk effect is you and I, when we process language, we don't just hear sounds through our ears. We also see the sounds through our eyes. So we read the lips of the person that is talking at the same time while we're hearing what they're saying. So if you're neurotypical, there's this 50-50 blend in which you're processing speech through your eyes and looking at how the mouth is moving. At the same time, you're hearing the sounds. And the McGurk effect is if I was to talk and you were to see my mouth do different movements, you would think that I was saying something different. So for instance, if I said, go, and you heard a recording of me saying, go, but my lips were pursed together, You would probably say, she said, Bo, that's what I heard, because you're using both your eyes and your ears to process language. That's known as the McGurk effect. What the research indicates, for instance, is children with autism, they don't use the McGurk effect. And that's because they more slowly process the auditory. So there's not a match in which they're processing visual and auditory at the very same time. They're processing the visual before the auditory. So it's kind of like a poorly dubbed foreign film in which the the lips are not matching up to what they hear in the sound. It's not well dubbed. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to make a well-adopted film. And I write about this in my book, how we can create the McGurk effect. But there's four strategies I'm going to talk about. Number one, we're going to slow the speech and we're also going to slow the movements so that they move in concert with one another. Secondly, we're going to play charades. Now, this is very important. If you think about the gestures we make with our bodies, and you actually do it maybe in your spare time when you're in the car and make these gestures, what you're going to find is a lot of the gestures mimic what the tongue and the mouth are doing to create sounds. So for instance, if I was to say, come here. You can see my tongue is pulling back as my hand waves back. There's so many other gestures. Bye-bye. Hello. The mouth is doing what the hand is doing. These are brilliant gestures because the gestures not only convey meaning, but they also show the user what the mouth is doing. They make it bigger. So when you come up with your gestures and you're playing charades, Think of gestures that match what the mouth is doing and also convey meaning. So I don't use sign language when I'm using my gestures because simply many of the signs are not connected to what the mouth is doing or what the meaning of the word is. So instead, I place charades and I create my own gestures. Now, it's okay that there's variability. I've worked with over 50 graduate students at this time. They create their own gestures and the children follow along with their gestures as well. They are very flexible in that manner. I promise you, we don't all need to be using the same gestures. So the third part of that that we're going to want to use is we're going to want to dial up our animation. So think about it. We're going at a slower pace. and We're going to be speaking more slowly. So that's going to require greater amounts of attention on the child. And we know that children with language impairment are more likely to have attentional deficits as our children with autism spectrum disorder. I'm going to kind of lump them together because this is an area that is is often difficult for children with autism spectrum disorder auditory processing. So what we're going to do is we're going to be larger than life in our voice and in our movements. And we're going to be performing kind of like a Shakespearean actor before the time of a microphone in which you are going to be moving large and loud. Your movements are loud. Your voice is loud. Unless the child has auditory sensitivity issues, you want to overpower every distraction in that room. The fourth strategy we're going to do is we're going to use highly engaging activities because we know that children with attentional deficits and children with autism spectrum disorder, they respond even more so than neurotypical children if the activity is of interest to them. That really, really matters. So we're going to want to create activities that are highly engaging. All right. So now it's time to talk about the intervention itself, the activity. You don't need to be J.K. Rowling when it comes to creating a narrative. It doesn't have to be 
a fantasy with great imagination. In fact, the research indicates that a simple how to do something a narrative is just as effective as a fantasy narrative that involves fantasy characters. You're going to get the same language and literacy outcomes. You don't need to be J.K. Rowling at a table in the kitchen in front of a candle making up incredible narratives. That's not the case. The magic's going to happen happen in your ability to engage the child throughout the narrative and to pull back your scaffolds so the child can take on the lead and pass the baton to the child so the child can be the teacher. That's where the magic's going to happen. So the McGurk effect, we're creating the McGurk effect in which we are going to move at a slower pace. I'm going to give an example here and you're going to hear it if you're listening to the podcast. But when you're listening to the podcast, I want you to imagine what type of cues you would use with your body as you pair this movement activity. So I'm going to tell you four steps to the movement activity. I'm going to tell you that first, we're going to pick a toy. Next, we're going to cross a bridge. Then we're going to throw the toy in the box. And lastly, we're going to check the checklist. Now, This is how I'm going to do it in a McGurk fashion. When I do it, I want you to think of if you're on a podcast or even if you're at home, I want you to move in your way. There's no right way to move. And the children are going to buy into it if you buy into it. If you're doing these gestures and charades and you're not feeling it, the children are going to pick that up and they're not going to feel it and buy into it either. So I encourage you to create your own that are meaningful to you and the children will follow you. You be the Pied Piper, okay? This is your show. So I'm going to show you the rate at which I do them very slowly with the children right now. This is the McGurk effect in action. Okay, here it goes. Okay, first pick toy next cross the bridge stick your tongue out then throw it in the box and lastly check the check list because that's how we Play the game. So you saw how slowly I did that. And I hope you were thinking in your mind, 
how would I use these charades and cues when I'm working with a child? And these are very important. I've created the McGurk effect because the auditory is matching the visual. I'm giving them the gift that neurotypical children have that improves comprehension. What's really magical about this is the next step is I'm going to stop talking whenever possible. So it would just look like me doing the gestures and no longer speaking. And then the child is doing the talking. When that transfer occurs in which the therapist is no longer talking and the child is, that's the magical moment in which the child develops an internal locus of control, which the child knows my efforts matter. I take the lead. I am the teacher now. This is, I think, the most important goal for every single child on my caseload. And I would even reach as far to say every child on your caseload is that they develop an internal locus of control so that when they leave you, they leave you with a pack filled full of resilience. And they know that the mountains that are ahead of them They can traverse those mountains, and that's because their efforts, not their environment, not their neurology, not any other person determines whether or not they'll be successful. They will. They're in control. So that is, I think, the most important goal with every single child that we work with is self-efficacy. And that's what's going to happen when we stop talking. And we're only able to stop talking because of the maximum level of cueing that we've provided non-verbally. That is my most effective strategy for improving narratives. So in closing, if you want to join me and make the world a better place by changing one child's life at a time, the focus needs to be on self-efficacy in every single thing that you do. And I'm really proud to say that in my book, Speech Sound Disorders, that's the name of the game, is that the child takes the lead as the teacher and that we fill that backpack for the children we work with full of resilience so that they can climb the multiple mountains that lie ahead of them in the years to come. So check out my book for your Christmas present. If you don't have it yet, you are going to love it. It has over a hundred digital clips of actual therapy and it's full of downloads that you can use in therapy tomorrow. Also, if you have not checked out the Sparkle in School membership, you are going to love it. It is so good. It's all about developing self-efficacy in the activities. They're extremely educationally rich. And the second part of the year, which we're getting into, is really focused on building oral narratives. So if oral narratives, and you have a lot of children with developmental language delay on your caseload, you're really going to want to jump in about right now. So thank you so much for joining me today. And I want you to roll up your sleeves and make the world a better place. One child at a time. You are always first. Huh? <laughs>